since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into the hearts of many through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too can have new life. For if we've been united with him in death like he was, we will certainly also be united with him in the resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with and that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we pray that you'll help us to better understand what you're trying to say to us today through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're really glad that, again, that you are uh, here today with us. We are continuing our spring and into summer uh, teaching series 
uh, titled, Is This Good News? Is This Good News? Where we are exploring some of the primary teachings of the Christian church and the Adventist tradition. And so over the next uh, few weeks, we are going to be wrestling with some kind of basic concepts that, uh, that uh, tie together this idea of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the Christian tradition and, and in the Adventist tradition in particular. And so we started last week. You can go to adventhope.org where you f- will find our video or uh, audio podcasts. And uh, we've got some exciting things coming up in the week to come. You're stuck with me for the next couple of weeks, but then we've got some guests coming in. Uh, Firstly, we have Jeremiah Davis, who I'm excited to introduce to you next week as our new summer intern coming to us as a a student from Andrews University, where he's studying uh, for the ministry and one of Advent Hope's own. We sent him off to Andrews, and we're excited to have him coming back to us here to work for the summer, and he will be uh, sharing with you in just a couple of weeks as part of this uh, series. And then we have Sarah King, an Advent Hoper who's uh, living abroad, and we'll be back to talk about uh, the Sabbath. And we have our own J- uh, Jael Amador's Jael here today. We're gonna, you're going to hear from her. Always a, a great time as she talks about the church. Anyway, some exciting things coming up as we look at these kind of basic uh, principles toward what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what the Christian church is all about. And again, we hope you'll either be here with us or you'll be listening or watching on adventhope.org. Now, our text of emphasis today uh, ends with some fairly straightforward uh, instructions. In verse 11 of Romans chapter 6, we uh, read this again. This is the Apostle Paul talking to the Roman church. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Pretty, pretty straight. Uh, forward, this idea of sin. There's some, certainly some key words that jump out here. Obviously, this idea of sin or, or, or the brokenness of humanity and our, our inability to really live healthy and whole lives, but to, rather we do things that are hurtful and harmful to ourselves and to each other. And so this idea of sin is innate into this, this passage. Um, but other things to note, first of all, it's, it's interesting to note here that Paul is talking to the church in Rome. I actually found this particularly interesting because I was in Rome for the first time a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I had the opportunity, I've shared this with you, I'm going to talk about Italy for the next four weeks, just so you know, because I'm st- I just can't stop. It was, it was such an amazing experience, but I was in Rome with the family and um, met the pastor from the Roman church just by coincidence here in New York, and he asked me to preach, and so I had the opportunity to preach to the Roman church, and suddenly it was like, oh yeah, this is real. There are actually Romans in a Roman church in Rome. And so, there, and so I got to share with them a little bit from Romans. That was a little weird. Like, I wouldn't say, oh, oh, and you, you know. But anyway, so the, Paul is talking to a real live church that existed in his day, the Roman uh, church. And so he had some very explicit things to say to them about sin and their brokenness and so on. And he uses uh, some, some metaphors. The first metaphor we see here is the idea of slavery. He says that you're slaves to sin and you need to kind of be broken of that, uh, of that master, if you will. Now, 
if you know that the, the idea of slavery in the first century certainly is a little different than American history of, of slavery, and you became a slave in the first century it's in, in, in Rome because you, didn't, you, you couldn't pay your expenses or you did something to someone, and so the penalty was that you would become a slave. And in fact, you, in, in certain cases, you could earn your way or you could pay your way out of slavery. Obviously, that's completely different than our American experience, uh, the, the horrific nature of slavery in America. So it's th that, that is important to note because we're talking kind of about a little different kind of slavery, but Paul is really emphasizing this idea of slavery, that you are, you're indebted uh, to someone, you're indebted to sin, and that needs to be changed, that relationship needs to change. He also uses the metaphor of a death to describe the kind of relationship we should have with, with sin, with our brokenness, with our inability uh, to live healthy and whole lives, that we should die to that way of living and that we should have new life. And so these two metaphors, death and uh, slavery, are key to Paul's argument here to the Roman church in Romans chapter 5 and 6. And again, we should note that he is really, really uncompromising in his call for right behavior, right behavior. He sees like th this brokenness, the sin problem is having an horrific effect on our behavior and that our behavior, our sinful behavior, is harmful to ourselves, to our relationship with God, and to our relationship with each other. I should note last week, as we started our time together, uh, is this good news? We talked about the fall, uh, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, where everything got started. And, uh, and so we see it from that time forward, we kind of had this inclination toward doing things that are harmful and hurtful to our relationship with ourselves, with our relationship with each other, and certainly our relationship with God. With that said, this uncompromising end to Romans chapter 6 and how we got to get our behavior together, we have to ask ourselves in line with our teaching series, is this good news? Is an uncompromising message to get our behavior figured out, is this uh, good news? I, I, I mention that because the reality is that most of us have a really difficult time getting our behavior uh, under wraps or, or, or in control. Uh, the idea of becoming dead to sin, dead to things that are hurtful and harmful to our relationship with ourselves, each other, and with God, that's really, really challenging. And so as we start, we want to think about, well, why is this so? I mean, here's this uncompromising message of kind of getting it together and yet it's really, really challenging. What makes uh, it so challenging for us to get our, our, our behavior uh, together? Well, I think there are a couple, there are a lot of responses, but there are some that we want to talk about today. First of all, again, as mentioned from Genesis chapter 3.15, hurtful, harmful behavior is the default mode for our old human nature. I mean, we just, since the fall, Genesis 3 and, 5, and, and chapter 15, which gives us the inkling of some good news. Since that time, Gen in Genesis chapter 3, our default mode is to do things that are harmful to ourselves, other people, and, and our relationship with God. And so uh, we exercise that free will uh, against God in the beginning, and so we are, our default mode is to just continue to do things that aren't good uh, for us. And because of this, it's very, very difficult when default mode sits in you. I mean, you know what default mode is. It's like when, when everything else is, isn't working or you're not really thinking, you go back to, 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 
to that way of doing things, right? And so our default mode is to go to a way that's hurtful and harmful for us. And that's a challenge. I mean, it wouldn't be great if our default mode was just to live in perfect harmony with ourselves, with each other, and with God. That would be amazing. That's not how it is now. And so we are inclined to do things that are harmful. So <laughs> that makes following the instructions, the uncompromising instructions of Paul in Romans 6 really, really uh, difficult. Uh, secondly, it's difficult because even when we start to make uh, good decisions, we get easily uh, distracted. How many of you are being currently being successful with your New Year's resolutions? We are now approaching month number six. How many are just killing it? Every resolution is just flourishing. Nobody, nobody is killing with their re resolutions. Now, you, you start, some of you didn't make resolutions. We talked about this at the beginning of the, the year, even though we say, you know, psychologists have identified that it's nice to have times when you reboot, you start over, and for many of us, the new year is one of those times when we kind of think about the things we want to do in our life and, and identify areas in which we want to grow, and so we're so optimistic. Weren't you optimistic in, on January 1? New year. <laughs> Some of you weren't optimistic. Apparently, my wife was not optimistic on the front row. She has to live with me. How could she be? How could she be? Um, anyway, some of you weren't optimists. Some of you were, like, starting a new year, and you came up with your list of things that you were going to do to get your life together. And, and some of you were really ambitious. I remember we were talking about it. Some of you have some really ambitious goals. You were going to get it together. Some of you were a little, little more pessimistic. But we all want to start fresh, and we start ideally, whether it's the new year, the new month, or whenever. Um, and yet, even when we start making good decisions, it's really, really easy for us to get distracted, as we can see with the failure for our New Year's resolutions, and so we get distracted. Uh, finally, uh, when things are, are indeed going well, again, so let's say we are being successful in following the instructions of Paul and getting our act together, uh, when we are feeling like we've really got things under control, or we're, we're managing our bad behavior well, or we're fixing the hurtful things that we do well. Uh, we tend to, when we're really killing it with that, we tend to take a little bit uh, too much credit for ourselves. And then once you start doing that, that can quickly lead to some pretty extensive hubris and uh, fall and uh, destruction. You know, when you're really getting your, your life together or you really feel like things are hitting it, whether it's in your your, uh, your career or maybe some other aspect uh, of your life, it's really easy to lose sight of all the things that have supported you uh, getting you there. And so you kind of, it's, it's really easy to take that streak of success that you might be having and to get a little bit comfortable about how awesome you are and to not recognize the speed bumps that are approaching very quickly. And so for most of us, we don't exist in that realm of absolute success when it comes to our brokenness very long. So we might get it together for a while, we might feel like we're being really successful and managing our behavior and overcoming some of our weaknesses, but that doesn't last long enough. Do you know what I'm talking about? Everybody with me? Or, is, or are you all just killing it all the way through? You're just successful in every aspect of your life, you're not hurting yourself, others, or your relationship with God? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, all right, thank you. My friend, so good to see you. 
again. Oh, good to have you back. Thank you for acknowledging that you are, you, you, you are broken, just like me, right? Yeah, okay, all right. Um, isn't it great? I, I say this all the time, but I, I feel something like compelled, like it's so beautiful to come together as a community, especially in a place like New York, where we are inspired and encouraged to just have it together all the time, to be able to come together as a community and say, we don't have it together. We are broken. You, know, you, you can't often do this in your workplace. If you say, I am broken, I don't have it all together, you might not be working very long there. So, but we can do this as a community. We are broken. We're not able to get it together. And even in the times when we are hitting our, our streak and we're doing better and we're managing our behavior, even in those times, we're usually set up to uh, fail. And so this leads us with our really existential question that we ask almost every single week. Well, what hope do we have? I mean, if we are not good at getting our act together, at, at overcoming sin, as Paul invites us to, to do, as to, to, to die to sin and to rise to new life, if we are incapable of doing that on our own or we're not very good at doing that on our own, what hope do we have? You know where this goes. It always comes back to God's work through Jesus. You know, the good news is that uh, Jesus didn't uh, default to an, an old way of doing things. He didn't default to the uh, brokenness. And he also didn't get distracted by his own success. And he knew where he, his success really uh, came from. In Hebrews chapter 4, uh, we read that uh, Jesus uh, was a great high priest. And he's not unable to empathize <laughs> empathize with our weakness. We have a high priest who has been tempted in every way just as we are and yet didn't sin, didn't succumb to the weakness of the broken human nature. Jesus has done what we have been unable to do. He didn't default to the brokenness of humanity. He overcame that brokenness. And so that is really good news that while we haven't been able to do it, someone, someone has come and has done what we could not uh, do. But even that is a little bit discouraging if we just leave it at that because the idea that someone else has done what we couldn't do is like, wow, that's great, great for him. Thank you, that's great for him. Uh, what does that mean for us? And that's what we want to talk about for the rest of our time together. What does this practically mean for us that Jesus did what we couldn't do? Because again, it's like, thank you, good for you, unless it has an impact on our experience. And again, the good news is that the promise of the Bible is that indeed, because Jesus has done what we have not been able to do, there are practical implications for our own experience as individuals and as a community. And Paul, in Romans 5 and 6, before he got to the exhortation portion, mentioned uh, these things, these practical uh, implications. Now, I want to throw out to you just two, because we're talking about some of like, the, the basic principles of, of the Christian faith and the Adventist tradition, to throw out a couple of like, theological words right, that you may or may not be familiar with. Right? And the words are uh, justification and sanctification. Right? These are two concepts that are that are often talked about in 
uh, the Christian community, and for good reason, because they are mentioned many, many, many times in uh, the New Testament. But if you hear the word, let's just start with justification, for, it can fall a little flat because it does sound very theological, and it's also not the best transi- uh, translation of the original of the original concept in the original language. In fact, the best translation uh, would be translated to a word that doesn't really exist, but we're going to make it up and use it today, and it's called rightification. Rightification. So justification is kind of the theological word, but the better translation would be rightification, but that's not really a word. Nobody's ever heard that, but we're going to use that today because rightification has, I think, a little more a little more meaning, a little more spice to it. Rightification is the, is the process of being made right. So, so the idea is that we, have, we are wrong. We're in the, in the wrong. And that's how it impact for us. So all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, humans, you and I, have been living in the wrong. Like our, our innate nature is to do the wrong thing. And it hurts us. It hurts our relationship with ourselves, with each other, and with God. But the practical implications of Jesus coming and doing what we were unable to do is that we now have the opportunity to be made right. Rightification. Justification. Uh, so what, what, what does this actually practically, again, mean for us? Brooke, I see you. Brooke, you're here. Did, how did the march go? It was not, it's not happening yet. We're going later? Later. Okay. Brooke and our peace ministry team is going to march for the anti-gun of violence of efforts up north. So, Brooke, thank you for leading that team. And how can people join you, Brooke? In 20 minutes. So we will not be disturbed if you follow Brooke out in 20 minutes to go up north to the anti-gun violence rally. Thank you, Brooke, for leading the team for that. Anyway, okay, so justification, rightification, what are the practical implications? The Bible says there are a bunch. First of all, uh, rightification means that we are made right with God. Like we are out of whack with God. Things are off key. But because of Jesus' work, we are made uh, right. We're out of, you, you, know, you know what it's like to live out of sync with someone? Maybe you've been you, at your job, you're, you're put in on a team where there's just someone that you're not in sync with. They're annoying to you. They, are, they just drive you crazy. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever been forced to be in an environment where you're just not in sync with another person? Isn't that annoying? Maybe you're the person that other people are out. I don't know. Either way, it's not uncommon to be tied together with someone you're out of sync with. And the implication of the sin problem back in Genesis 3 is that we have been out of sync with God. Like we're annoying and he's annoying to us. And we know that. I mean, sometimes have you been, ever been annoyed by God? Of course you have. God can be a little annoying. And when we're out of sync with God, that's not a great experience. But the, the promise of rightification, the promise of God's work in Jesus is that God wants to make us through that right with him. So we're in sync. We're not annoyed uh, by him. Uh, secondly, justification acquits a person of personal guilt. There's a bunch of ideas and metaphors when it talks about the sin uh, problem, the implications. One of is that we're guilty, that as humans we are, are guilty of a wrong. And there's nothing, I don't think, worse than being, you know, guilty. You know, you did something wrong. You know you've done something 
a wrong and that guilt of what is going to happen because of that is on you or maybe you just feel guilt even though nothing may happen to you. Feeling guilty is not a comfortable place to be, but the promise of God's work in Jesus through rightification or justification is that we are acquitted of guilt. We are released of guilt. Rightification also means that we are forgiven. Have you ever done someone wrong like maybe intentionally or unintentionally, you, you, you did something that you need for forgiveness for. Once again, not a great position to, to be in. When you've hurt someone, you've said something, maybe you were joking, I don't know what, what happened. Maybe you weren't joking and you hurt someone. There is nothing better than going and apologizing to a person and receiving forgiveness. Isn't that the best thing? I mean, especially when you're burdened, maybe you're not sure how it's going to go, but you, you, you apologize and the person bestows forgiveness on you. This, again, is one of the practical implications of God's work through Jesus identified in this concept of justification or right of, rightification that we are forgiven by God. So we have, we were made right with God, we are, we are acquitted of guilt, we are forgiven by God, we are also given, we're told, new life, new life. I mean, that's a great, great concept. I mean, some of us want to start fresh and new, and again, we, we put resolutions together and so on. The promise of God's work in Jesus is that a person has the opportunity for new life, for a new start. And then uh, finally, I say finally, there's a bunch of other implications, but for the sake of time, we're just going to end with this one justification or rightification or God making us right through the work of Jesus means that we can live in a holistic community together in a way that we never will when we're not made right. Because when we are made right with God, we're also made right with each other. And so that can do some exciting things when, it, when we're talking about coming together and living in community. Being made right with God and right with each other can create an incredible and, and, and beautiful community together, uh, particularly because we recognize that it's not because of our own awesomeness. By the way, have you ever been about around a group of people who just think that they are awesome? I mean, it's one thing to be around one person who thinks they're awesome and that everything they've done is spectacular. A group of people who all think that they're awesome and that they can do no wrong, do you know what it's like to be around that kind of group of people? No, no, I'm asking, do you know? Are you, are you in that group? The beautiful construct, again, of the church, the church, is that we can come together and recognize that we are not that awesome. In fact, we're probably not that great. Uh, but in Jesus, we have hope of being made right with God and with each other, and that's the kind of group I want to be around. Humble. Humble. You know, we just be right to be around an arrogant group of people. How is it that so many Christians Christian communities have become arrogant. Is there anything more ironic than an arrogant group of Christians? <laughs> Christians should be the most humble people on the planet because the central idea of Christianity is that we are not that great. Not that great people should realize that they're not great and be kind of humble. So let's get it together, Christians. Okay? We're not that great, but we are bonded together because God has done work for us that we will never be able to do for ourselves. And so in him, we can come together as a community and say, I'm not that great. You're not that great. But God is working in us 
to do what we cannot do for ourselves. This is good news. This is why this is good news. Rightification. God making things right. We try to make things right on our own or we think we're right, and that does not, does not make for a good community. Nothing worse than being around a group of people who all think that they are innately right. That's annoying. Don't do that, Christians. Why would we do that? We're not right. But in Jesus, God makes us right. This is good news. All right, so that's, that's, that's construct number one. Theological con- concept number one. Justification or rightification. God uh, making things right. Now, how does this work? How do we take advantage of this? How do we be made uh, right? That's the big question. Well, our text of emphasis today says it's very easy. We have been justified. We have been made right through faith. Through faith. See, Christians, religious people, quite frankly, have been messing this up for thousands of years. The, the idea of justification, by the way, the idea of being made right is not something new. It goes back even before Christian times. The idea that, okay, something is wrong, we've got to make ourselves right, and so we're going to start doing really good things. Sometimes we're going to start doing really weird things, and by doing these things, we're going to be unusual, and we're going to make ourselves uh, right. But Paul in Romans 5 and 6, by the way, Romans, the book, whole book of the Romans, and Romans chapter 5 and 6 was one of those places where when people were reevaluating Christianity and saying something's up here with Christianity, they came to Romans and found Romans was, was the place where they kind of understood the good news or the gospel. People like Martin Luther, who for all intents and purposes started what we consider the Protestant Reformation, it was in Romans where he came to understand we are not going to make ourselves right by doing great behavior on our own. It just doesn't work that way. And so Paul says here, we have been made right through faith. Through faith. See, Jesus did what we have not been able to do. And by, in faith, believing, which is acknowledging and believing that he has done that, justification happens. We are made right. It's not because we figured it out and got our act together on our own. So this all happens through faith. Okay, so that's concept number one, the idea of justification, rightification, but we said that there's a second concept, and it's, 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 it's called in the Bible of sanctification or sanctos, or being uh, made separate, and again, I think that word falls a little bit on, on deaf ears because it doesn't, you know, sanctification, what does that mean? It doesn't really uh, connect with us, and again, the, the translation could be better, but it's, again, it's not really a word, but we're going to use the word, and it's really, the idea is that your sanctification is what happens. Sanctification. Now, saint, when you, if, you, if you were to go out and call yourself a saint uh, among anybody else, or probably even here in this community, somebody's going to want to slap you, because that, again, sounds annoying and pretentious, and yet, and yet, Paul's idea is that that is exactly what a follower of Jesus is to be, is a saint. I mean, it just means that you, 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 you are being transformed and changed by God's power within you. That's the idea behind uh, sainthood. Sainthood is not reserved for the elders. I mean, we didn't make Annette a saint today. See, she was already a saint. I mean, that's the idea. That's the idea of Paul. Like, if you, if you embrace the work of Jesus, then you are a saint. That's really the, the idea behind this. And so, sanctification, sanctification also has some really, really uh, clear and practical uh, 
implications. And the biggest implication is that the, the, the journey that a follower of Jesus is on is progressive and involves intensive growth. That there's development that happens over a time. 95 times in the New Testament talking about the idea of sanctification and what it means to be a follower of Jesus, uh, the, the idea of walking. Walking, you know, walking, you go to... And so there's this, this, this illustration of walking with God. You walk together. And when you walk together, you progress and you grow. Of course, it's good exercise, but you're also usually going to a place or a series of places. And so this is the idea of sanctification that, or, or sanctification, that sanctification is the process of walking together with God walking together, and in that there is, there is a growth, there is progressive development, and this happens over a person's lifetime. I mean, that's the beauty. You know, isn't it, it's cool that we, we grow, we grow. I mean, even old things grow. You know, if they, they take, I mean, I don't, we don't want them to do this, but let's say one of those giant trees that have been around for like a thousand years, if it, if it falls down and they cut it, you know what they can do? They can, they can cut it and they can identify uh, how old it is by the rings, but each ring represents growth. So you can have a tree that's like 900 years old, but every year there's a little bit of growth happening. And this is the idea of sanctification. That God works in us, so he's made us right with him in all of those areas that we talked about practically, but it also works for transformation and growth to change a person and help them to grow. And this is, again, a very a great concept. I mean, so many of us are wanting personal growth in, in, in whatever way. Again, you go to Barnes & Noble, and the personal growth section of Barnes & Noble or of, of Amazon is huge, right? And it's growing, and there's so many books on how you can get your act together in this way or this, how you can grow in this way. And so again, we read those books, and we're looking for, for growth, and those are good. I love a, a per personal growth book. I got a whole stack of them, and I love reading a personal growth, but, but the promise of the, the Bible is that true transformative long-term personal growth comes as we are walking with God. This is sanctification, God wanting to do his work with us over a, a period of time, and that this involves sometimes some ups, sometimes downs. You know, I was, I, I, I was again, in Italy. I told you I was going to mention this 40 times over the next two weeks. But one of the things I love about visiting uh, places that are older, have older cultures, I shouldn't say older, I mean, the, the Americas have been around as long as anywhere else, but there, there are some really cool experiences you go when you go to a place like, again, Rome, where you're driving on the bus and there's a wall that's been there for like 2,500 years. Or my favorite thing are, are the old cathedrals, you know, the, these cathedrals that were built eight, nine hundred years ago, but then over the years, they're never finished. They're always a work in, in progress. They're always growing. We actually have one here, you know, St. John of the Divine or by Columbia University is a great cathedral. It's one of the largest cathedrals in the, in the, in, in the Americas, uh, certainly, but they say it's never finished. You know, they have plans for the next phase of the, even though it's been around for a long time, the next phase of the, of the cathedral. That's certainly true. I mean, Notre Dame in, in, in uh, Paris, centuries, 
continual building, transformation, development. This is the idea, again, behind sanctification, that God is working. As long as a person is alive, you're supposed to be growing. There's no time in your experience where you put it in neutral. By the way, when you put it in neutral in your, in your, your person, your growth, it really means you're dying. I mean, neutral is not a great place to be. You always, I mean, when we talk about our relationships with each other, with ourselves, with God, you put it in neutral, things aren't going well. In fact, neutral usually means you're going backwards, especially if you're on a hill, right? If you put it on neutral on a hill, you're going to go backwards. You're not going to go forward. You're not going to just sit there. And so we are on this walking journey, and if you put it in neutral, you're probably going to end up going backwards and sanctification or sanctification is the idea that because Jesus did what we cannot do, we have access to transformative growth that doesn't come from our own ability, but comes from the work of God within us. And this too comes from faith that we believe that God did something in Jesus that makes us right with him and empowers us to live a new kind of life. Now, some of you watched, I did, on the news a couple months ago, Notre Dame, that beautiful building that has been under construction for 800 years, the roof burned down. Did you see that? I mean, if you've, I mean it's just almost hard to imagine if you've seen it in person or You've seen it, you pictured the idea. Sheldon, Sheldon texted me, Notre Dame is on fire. I thought he was joking. I thought it was a metaphor for something. And I turned on, and indeed, the roof was on fire. The roof uh, burned down of this building that has been in, in, in this development process for uh, centuries. What better, though, metaphor for many of us in our spiritual journey, our journey of sanctification? You know, you can be going along and God is doing his thing in your experience and you feel transformation and you feel growth and then your roof starts on fire. And all the, it feels like all the good process, all the good progress that's happened in your spiritual experience is just burned up and like you got to start over again. But this is the beauty of the idea of progressive growth, that just because our roof starts on fire and we experience a, 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 a downward trend in our growth does not mean that that's the end. See, God doesn't give up on us even when our roof starts on fire, even when things aren't going great for us. Progressive, a walk, a journey, the idea of growth is innate, the understanding of the journey, the walk, of uh, Christianity, that we are to be uh, growing. And sometimes there are hiccups or roofs on fire, but God doesn't give up because he's looking toward progression, toward the end. And so today, as we continue uh, this journey, exploring some of these basic understandings of Christianity, the idea of, of God doing in Jesus what we have not been able to do for ourselves, and that that has implications that we are made right with God, that we are acquitted of guilt, that we are forgiven, but also that we have access to power that we do not have on our own because Jesus uh, has done it. This is the good news. So again, how do we, how do we embrace this? Well, Paul earlier said it was through faith, but he gets even uh, more specific at the end of Romans chapter 6. He says, as we offer ourselves to God 
we receive justification and sanctification. So you're, you're, the question is, okay, oh, this sounds good. The idea of being made right, the idea of being made a, a saint. In other words, our behavior is transformed and changed. But how, how, how do we actually access it? What do I have to do? Paul is very clear. We offer ourselves to God. We offer ourselves to God. He doesn't say, you know, here's the 12-step plan to getting your act to, together. You know, don't you love those 12-step plans or those 10 or 5 steps? There's five ways to be a better Christian. We're always joking about that here at Avon Hope. You know, the sermons that are like the five steps to being a better Christian. It sounds great until you leave the doors. And, and, or, or, or until you start step one and then you get to step two. And then again, by step three of being a better Christian, you just haven't gotten it together. I mean, that sounds good until you actually put it in practice. There's only one step in Paul's plan, and that is offer ourselves to God. Offer ourselves to God. As we offer ourselves to God, now I would suggest, because this is a walk, because it's a journey, this is something that happens all the time, every day, whenever it's needed, that you offer yourselves to God, and as you offer yourself to God, the reservoir of power that is built up by Jesus' action is poured out into our experience through the Spirit, and we can be transformed and changed and live in new relationship with ourselves, with each other, and with God. God has done this, and God wants to do it in our experience today. And so, as we journey together with him, may he do for us what we cannot do for ourselves and pour out his power on your life and mine. I invite those of you, those of you who, who want to embrace this, to just say this confession uh, with me. Oh God, I offer myself to you. Amen.